for well-differentiated G1, G2 neuroendocrine tumors. If there's slowly progressive disease, it's entirely reasonable to increase the dose of somatostatin analog. I think that after second-line therapy such as chemotherapy, there's evidence to suggest the benefit of continuing somatostatin analog in that group of patients. This is a very important tool in our toolkit and we shouldn't really let go unless we have a re strong reasons to not continue SSA post-progression. NetConnect is an initiative of Core2Ed. This podcast is supported by an educational grant from Ipsen. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organisation or the rest of the NetConnect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Welcome to this podcast, The Role of Somatostatin Analogues at Progression to Continue or Not. Today, we will cover clinical practice points, data to support clinical decision-making, and patient impact of switching treatment or continuing SSA in progressive patients. My name is Aman Chauhan. I'm one of the medical oncologists at University of Kentucky with a clinical and research interest in neuroendocrine cancers, and I currently direct our Theranostics program at Markey Cancer Center. Today, I have a good fortune to have with me, Professor Martin Kaplan from England. He's a tour de force in neuroendocrine tumors, lead investigators of clarinet trials and several other studies. Martin, over to you. Would you like to introduce yourself to our newer audience? I know you don't need any introductions, but for the new folks listening in. Well, it could be I'm so old they don't even know, know of me. So <laughs> it's, um, it, it's Not true. Good, to, good to be here. Thank you very much, Aman. So I'm Martin Kaplan, and I'm a professor of gastroenterology and neuroendocrine cancer at the Royal Free Hospital in London at, and at uh, University College London. And uh, I lead the ENETS uh, Centre of Excellence uh, here for neuroendocrine tumours. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan, for being here with us. So before we go into deeper aspects of our topic today, let me prime the audience briefly with somatostatin analogues. Now, somatostatin analogs have been used uh, for several years, actually a few decades in neuroendocrine oncology. But the biggest seismic shift that we have seen was use of long-acting somatostatin analog, which are now the backbone of the treatment, I would say the mainstay of the treatment for metastatic neuroendocrine cancer patients. Currently, there are two major products, Landriotide and Octreotide LAR in the U.S., and they're used interchangeably for both disease control as well as carcinoid syndrome and functional net control in neuroendocrine tumors. Today, we will discuss some of the pivotal studies that led to the clinical use of these agents. But the key question today in front of us is, at the time of progression on SSAs, is there a role for continuing somatostatin analogs at progression? And if yes, what data would support that. With that introduction, over to you, Martin. Give us a brief introduction about strategies that you personally use in the European setup and kind of breast us with the current guidance from ENETS regarding this particular hot topic. Thanks very much, Aman. I suppose when you're assessing what treatment you're going to give any patient, you'd uh, 
look to see one, whether or not they're syndromic or not, the type of neuroendocrine tumor they have, midgut, pancreatic, or bronchial for that matter, the volume of disease that they've got, the rate of progression. I think you'd want to understand the biology of the tumor, well-differentiated tumors versus poorly differentiated, and within the well-differentiated, their grading in KI-67. And of course, the imaging, not only in terms of volume of disease uh, and rate of progression, but obviously whether they've got somatostatin receptor positivity, for example, with a gallium-68 somatostatin analog PET scan. So one takes all of that into account. For today's discussion, we're essentially talking about the well-differentiated grade one, grade two neuroendocrine tumours, and in the context of slow progression and and the use of somatostatin analogue in that situation. And we know from the original PROMID um, study and, of course, the Clarinet uh, study, PROMID with Olshtide LAR and midgut neuroendocrine tumours, Clarinet in midgut, predominantly midgut and pancreatic uh, neuroendocrine tumours, also some hindgut, the anti-tumour effect of both oxytide LAR and uh, lanrotide orchidol. I suppose if I was going to be contentious at, at the beginning, we know from Promid and from lanrotide, I'll come on to the rest of it, but we're having a wee bit discussion here. But, you know, in the early days, you used to start off at 20 milligrams of oxytide LAR, and now because of Promid, everyone starts off at 30 milligrams. And similarly, lanrotide, everyone starts off because of clarinet at 120 milligrams. Do you think there's still, I'm going to bounce it back to you because we're having a discussion here, but do you think there's a role for starting someone on 20 milligrams of oxytide LAR and then waiting and seeing and increasing that way and similarly 90 milligrams lanreotide autogel or would, do you think we should everyone should be starting at uh, the higher dose? Wonderful question, Martin. I'm sort of relatively newer in the field, and I've uh, seen uh, the current practice pattern, at least in the United States, since we are post-PROMED era. I've seen uh, oftentimes we start with either 30, and with Landriotide, it's a straightforward 120 dosage. However, there are some patients which I've inherited from the previous providers who were on 20 and doing great on that. So I do have that clinical perspective. However, based on the best available randomized data, I think for octreotide LAR, 30 makes me feel a little bit more comfortable considering I have the very superior tumor control data on that dose. Now, do I alter with that? Do I go higher than that? That's the question which has come to all of our minds, especially since Netter 1, which used higher dose of tritide as a control arm, and were able to show some degree of disease stabilization, I think median PFS, you know, eight to nine months or sometimes that range. So flipping the question back to you, what is the role of uh, increasing the dose or frequency of uh, both of these LARs uh, or long-acting somatostatin analogs? So it's, it's interesting. So let's just discuss first line because I suppose in, it was 2009 actually, uh, when Christos Tumpanakis was the first author on the paper with, which we published on oxide LAR, we had patients on 20 milligrams. And if they showed signs of progression, and that was around about a year later, they went up to 30 milligrams and they did well. 
And I was always interested in case you get for that question of tachyphylaxis, because if you start at a higher dose, do you perhaps get tachyphylaxis in the earlier stage? But you're right. The standard, I think, in through Europe now, through the States, is actually most people will start with Oxytide LER, 30 milligrams, and Lanreotide Autogel, 120 milligrams every 28 days. And I think we agree that that's probably the standard practice. But I just wanted to put it out there that that's only because the trials were done at that, the Promid and Clarinet. And uh, you could argue we don't have the evidence based in a randomized form, but actually we used to start off at 20 milligrams LAR and then go up to 30 milligrams and it's 90 milligrams going up to 120. I don't think there's a role for the 10 milligrams LAR or 60 milligrams for that matter of Landretide or still. But just to put it out there and in, uh, in terms of people's thinking, but I think standard practice is the, the higher dose. And then, so the question is, what do you do when the neuroendocrine tumor progresses? So uh, I've already diversified already from your original question. This could be a very long, I promise the, the listeners it won't be so long. But, <laughs> but uh, um, so for, you have to then decide for mid-gut um, and pancreatic for slowly progressive disease, as I say, well-differentiated, grade one, grade two we'd look to increase the dose of somatostatin analog. And then the question is, well, do you do that by just increasing the dose and going from uh, 120 of uh, lanreotide autogel to 240 milligrams? Or do you go from 120 milligrams, uh, that's every 28 days, to, or to 120 milligrams every two weeks? And I don't think there's a right or wrong way. And I think that the Italian study that didn't show any difference. Similarly, when you're considering the same for oxytide LER, we know, as you say, from NETA1, that actually 60 milligrams of oxytide LER in those patients who had progressive disease was reasonably well tolerated, more in the way of diarrhea, as one might have expected, and that there was a progression-free survival of uh, around about nine months in that group of patients. So that was good. And in clarinet forte, that was 120 milligrams. That was the Marion Pavel study from uh, 2021. It was published. And that was clarinet forte, 120 milligrams every 14 days in mid-gut and pancreatic neuroendocrine tumours. That was a single arm phase two study. And so you saw the benefit there in both progression-free survival was around about eight and a half months in the mid-gut, always less actually in the pancreatic group. It was only... 5.6. Yeah, yeah, because except for that group, which uh, were less than 10%, if the pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors are less than 10%, then you, you saw similar result eight months there. So that actually also brings into the question, well, actually, if you've got a higher grade, grade two uh, neuroendocrine tumor, you'd think that the response actually to the higher dose somatostatin analog is not going to be quite so long. But actually, if it's a, a G2 up to 10%, actually, you'd be expecting a PFS of around about eight to nine months. So and some patients do better than that, a few do do worse. But I think that would be the way forward from there. And then giving it the Italian study, as I say, whether it's once every 28 days or once every two weeks, but at the, double the dose. And I don't think there's much difference, whichever way it works most conveniently for the patients and the logistics uh, of it uh, as well. Uh, what's your practice? 
So Martin, we live in a very interesting era, especially for drug development and neuronic cancers lately. And we have what we call problem of plenty, which is a good problem to have. So in the past, where optimizing the dose of SSA was in vogue because primarily because of lack of treatment options, we now have uh, on-label options for metastatic progressive midgut, avrolimus, and uh, lutetium dotidate. We have options sunitinib for pancreatic nets. We also have some good prospective randomized data on agents like capecitamine timozolamide for a various subset of neuronicin tumors. So in context of multiple treatment options, we are seeing that there has been change in the practice patterns where we are no longer obligated to stick around with SSA or this class of drug at time of progression. Having said that, there, I think, has to be a more nuanced approach because as you mentioned, SSA have been around for a really long time, primarily because of convenience of administration, once a month injection, safety profile. The patients can stay on it for a significant amount of time without a consequential end organ bone marrow side effects. So there are definitely a lot of pros in using SSAs and that really propels us to continue using SSA in select patient population at time of progression, especially if a patient's relatively asymptomatic it's a slow progression. Patient does not feel comfortable with the idea of progressing into or trying out a cytotoxic chemo or radiopharmaceutical drug or another TKIs, which can have significantly higher side effects as compared to SSAs. So I think the answer lies in a nuanced approach, taking into account the need, the tumor progression, the degree of tumor growth, symptomatology, when we decide whether we continue SSA at a higher dose or a higher frequency, or we change the class of agent. I think we both agree that for functional nets, it's pretty standard to continue SSA regardless, while we figure out the appropriate anti-cancer regimen. But our biggest patient population is in non-functional nets. That's where we have to really discuss the case in a multidisciplinary tumor board and then kind of really think it through the pros and cons. What the studies that you've mentioned, the Clarinet Forte, for example, have uh, at least given us confidence that there is data to support higher dose or increased frequency of SSA, and that can potentially have a role. You know, I was very impressed with Clarinet Forte, although it's a decent sized single arm study, 99 patients, and definitely showed some, some indications of cytostatic activity in especially mid-gut population at progression with 8.3 months of uh, median PFS. That's, I think, for some patients that might be very meaningful. And similarly, Netro 1 placebo or control group also reaffirms that there could be added activity at progression for higher dose SSA. So I think it has to be a little bit more nuanced approach and good to know that there is some safety data to confirm that we can continue SSA at a higher dose or frequency in some select patient population. Yeah, so I think you can summarize that by saying slowly progressive disease, well-differentiated G1, G2, tumor moderate small to moderate volume it's entirely appropriate 
to go as a second line to increase uh, the dose of uh, somatostatin uh, analog. And so I think we're, we're agreed on that. I think on both sides of the Atlantic, and I think the guidelines are uh, heading that way. And, and certainly the consensus is uh, on, on both sides of the Atlantic that, that that's the way to go. Martin, if, my, if I may add another important point, especially in a country, large country like the United States, where majority of patient treatments done out in community, 90% of our cancer patients are treated out in community setting, where access to radiopharmaceutical treatment or clinical trials might be somewhat limited. So all these agents, which, which providers are very comfortable using it, a higher dose of this at time of progression can be a very valuable tools in their toolbox while they are trying to get patients transferred to a high volume tertiary care center. And sometimes might not even be possible because there are no net centers in, in the vicinity. So all in all, I think it's a win for the patients that they at least have an option to go higher the dose or frequency, especially if don't, they don't have access to the newer treatments. Yes, and I have to say, we've sometimes gone in terms of the scheduling from just, uh, for example, 120 milligrams every four weeks down to three weeks and then down to two weeks. So, and patients have done well doing it that way as as well, provided you're keeping uh, an eye on them and, and scanning them, you know, on a three to six monthly basis. So there's no definite sort of way forward in, in doing that. But I think actually practically reducing it, the frequency is, seems to work equally well. And I, so I don't see that as being uh, a problem. I think there's an amount of leeway which you can take this forward. Do you stop, though, the somatostatin analogue? You've got a patient with a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumour. They've progressed on their higher-dose somatostatin analogue. You're giving them CAPTEM now. Do you stop the somatostatin analogue at that point if they're not syndromic? It's a great question. Again, it's one of those things where we truly lack prospective randomised data to guide us. However, my personal practice is to stop SSA in pancreatic nets uh, if I'm switching them over to cytotoxic chemotherapy. And then, for example, Keptem can be highly effective just by itself in nets. And uh, the response rates are actually uh, very impressive, in especially PNET setting. So we have to also factor in the financial toxicity and, and burden added to the patient. I feel with an effective treatment like Keptem, and Keptem by itself also very taxing on patient with a very complex 14-day regimen and they have to come for a monthly checkup for blood work. I try to minimize additional therapeutic interventions unless there is a very convincing data to support that adding SSA would certainly uh, accentuate the benefits. Having said that, if your scenario flipped to PRRT, for example, my practice might be somewhat different. And, and maybe this is a good segue to discuss the uh, role of SSA during and post PRRT, because my personal practice has swayed from discontinuing SSA to now continuing SSA th- during PRRT and post PRRT. And then maybe we can have a little powwow regarding that. Martin, what, let me flip back question to you in context of theranostics. Let's go back to the chemotherapy one. First of all, I think you're right that if the patients progress through their higher dose somatostatin analog, it's totally reasonable to stop it. You go on to your, your CAPTEM 
And then the question is, once you've completed your cap term, though, so some people will carry on long term, but other people will stop, for example, after six uh, cycles, if they've just had got stable disease at that point. And then you have the remnants. That was where the remnants study came in, in terms of looking at the role of lanreotide autogel in patients. In that, that was a randomized, uh, double-blind uh, placebo-controlled trial after their, uh, essentially their chemotherapy most of those patients had had. Should you give them lanreotide after the chemotherapy or, or not? And that was the placebo group versus the group who had the uh, lanreotide. And undoubtedly what came out of uh, Reminet was there was a benefit, actually, if you put the patients on the somatostatin analogue after the chemotherapy. So the median PFS in the active treatment group was 19 months plus. And in the placebo with the lanreotide, that was 120 milligrams. And the placebo group was uh, seven and a half months. So there was definitely, seems to be a benefit. It wasn't such a small study, it was 50 in each arm. So I think you could argue that if that would be reasonable after chemotherapy to put patients on a somatostatin analog. The caveat to that, though, is that patients feel quite a lot better coming off their somatostatin analog because they're not getting the steatorrhea and the griping abdominal discomfort. And so, you know, I think it's not unreasonable to say, well, maybe come off it, but if you show some signs of aggression, we can put you back on a somatostatin analog at that time. But the answer from Reminet was that actually those patients who's had chemotherapy actually did better uh, if they were put back on the somatostatin analog. If I may add, Go on. Yes. beautiful study that you pointed out, especially our understanding of long-term side effects with Cape Tam, we are understanding the bilotoxicity, both short and long-term. And our practice has been now moving towards more truncated or a, the shorter versions of Cape Tam. There was a time I of used to use Cape Tam at a stretch for a year and a half, maybe at a lesser frequency. Uh, now I routinely stop Cape Tam after nine months. So in that context, I do feel with lesser induction regimen Cape Tam, there could be definitely a role of maintaining with a more safer medication like landriotide. And then remnant data certainly compels us to think uh, using SSA as a maintenance post Cape Tam. Yeah, and, yeah. and then you can always retreat if they've responded uh, well as down the line. I think that, that that's a, a very reasonable way forward. Moving on to the PRRT aspect of it, of course, uh, the NETA-1 study involved continuing the patient on oxytide LAR, 30 milligrams in between their courses of PRRT. And I think that's totally reasonable, and that would be our practice, actually, to do that in the real world. And I suppose the, the interesting paper in context of that was the one from a couple of years ago from, was that the Bond Group who published that is correct. on that? And, and that was interesting because it showed that if you, they, so they divided up, there were two groups, there was 80 in one group, which just had PRRT alone and uh, 87 in another group, which had PRRT plus the somatostatin uh, analogue. And the progression-free survival in the group, which, which was just PRRT alone without somatostatin analog, was 27 months. But in the group that had PRRT plus somatostatin analog, the PFS was 48 months. So 
that's very compelling, although in good numbers of patients, although it was a retrospective study. And But my inclination is actually to actually put patients on or keep them on somestatin analogue during and after their treatment, even if they're non-functional. But again, I have a number of patients who say, you know what, I want to have a break off the somestatin uh, analogue and uh, ideally uh, I would like to stop it and because of the side effects. And so those patients do okay for, for a good period of time. And you have the choice then if there's signs of slow progression to put them back on somastatin analog. Obviously, there's a whole question then of retreatment PRRT, which is for another day. But um, I think that would be a reasonable approach. What do you do in the States? What's your protocol? So wonderful question, Martin. And I do agree with you. I think there cannot be a one-size-fit-all approach. A lot of time we factor in the patient preferences. If patients have had it and wanted some break off the monthly shot, especially after PRRT or during PRRT, that's very reasonable. However, my personal practice has switched from not continuing SSA post-PRRT to routinely continuing SSA. And some of the factors which have led to that has been, of course, uh, the, some, the strongest data comes from the Bond group, which have showed in this uh, single center study, like you mentioned, almost doubling the benefit with the combination, but also my anecdotal experience. So I'm, I'm very impressed with continuing SSA as long as patient is okay and there are no side effects. Having said that, just a small plug, so me and Simran Singh from CCTG, we are going to be co-leading Net Retreat Cooperative Group International Study. And one of the stratification factor of the study is the prior use of SSA post-PRT. So we will try to prospectively look into whether there are signals of added efficacy in patients who continued SSA post-initial PRRT. So hopefully we'll have some data coming up to fill this critical unmet need of prospective data looking at role of SSA post-PRRT. But it's a, it's a very, very good question, unfortunately, with no good data. However, my personal practice and most people here in the U.S. do tend to seem to continue SSA post-PRRT. Yes, and I think that's that's probably the case in Europe as well for our general practice as well. So I think we even agree on on, on that one on both <laughs> sides. So I suppose if you we could say I'm cognizant that we're 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 now running out of time, but I think we have we've actually sort of come to a situation where for well differentiated slowly progressive disease, it's appropriate to increase the dose of SSTA and whether that's going uh, every two weeks or just doubling the dose, that then with chemotherapy, there's an argument following chemotherapy based on remnant, actually patients should probably go uh, back on a, a, a somastatin uh, analog there. And that for PRRT, you would continue it during and then afterwards um, as well at a standard dose. The other bit about that, though, is if a patient's been on, let's say, 60 milligrams of oxytide LAR or 240 milligrams of lanreotide dorsal, and then they ha- they've had their PRRT afterwards, or, or, or chemotherapy for that matter, would you carry on at that high dose or would you put them on a standard dose? <laughs> 
Oh my goodness, that's uh, reminds me of that movie Inception. You know, it's it's. <laughs> I said I'd throw you a curveball question, and so this is it. I saved it to the end. Right. So I think that is a fair question because this is a situation which we will soon see on the uptake with in the with the advent of PRT. We are seeing patients who are progressing on PRT and are being now rechallenged with PRT and other line of therapies. As our patients live longer, we'll continue to have these. Uh, questions regarding continued role of SSA post second line, third line, fourth line. Having said that, I think we'll have to use the same guiding principles. What are our alternative treatments at that point of time? If we have a reasonable, good third line, either in a clinical trial setting or a standard treatment, is there a data to suggest safety of adding SSA to those agents? Is patient preferences paramount if patient is okay with continuing SSA and how has patients prior experience with SSA as there been pancreatic insufficiency, steatoria, and other issues. I think we'll have to continue to navigate these troubled waters with nuance unless we have some good quality data. I think I am happy with continuing SSA, like you mentioned, post-PRRT for the time being. I'm happy looking at remnant data that gives me some justification using SSA post-cytotoxic chemo, especially if I can truncate the chemo regimen and prevent some of those long-term myelotoxicity and maintain on SSA. SSAs are relatively safer. Long-term safety data exists. Uh, with that, Martin, I think we are closing in on our allotted time. Any, any final words, any piece of advice for our listeners? My key take-home messages are that for well-differentiated G1, G2 neuroendocrine tumors, if there's slowly progressive disease, it's entirely reasonable to increase the dose of somatostatin analog, whether that be increasing the frequency from four weeks down to two weeks or even three weeks, or, or, or just uh, increasing the dose every every month. I think that after second line therapy, such as chemotherapy, there's evidence to suggest the benefit of continuing somatostatin analog in that group of patients. And similarly, for those patients with PRRT, again, during PRRT and after PRRT, I think the evidence is there to continue somatostatin uh, analog. I concur with my colleague, uh, Dr. Kaplan, and I'd like to add in neuroendocrine tumor patients who are SSTR positive, we have a wonderful drug with significant safety profile data available, and we should be willing to use this uh, if it can help us minimize toxicity, for example, if we can reduce the exposure to chemotherapy and maintain patient on SSA, if we can continue SSA maintenance post-PRT, there are some data to, to really convince us that there is added benefit of adding SSA post-PRT. So there is role of continuing SSA post-progression, but I would suggest that us as a community, we need to design studies to really tease out the target patient population so that we can continue SSA in the right patient without overburdening the system and not treating everybody with a shotgun approach. I think it's been a fascinating discussion in terms of the clinical aspects of this and the clinical trials and how, how we use that. So thank you very much for the opportunity 
to uh, to be involved has been uh, a great pleasure Aman to uh, be discussing uh, with you and and, and with our uh, audience likewise pleasure was all mine and i echo dr kaplan's uh, comments this is a very important tool in our toolkit and we shouldn't really let go unless we have uh, re- strong reasons to not continue SSA post-progression. Wonderful to have you here, Dr. Kaplan. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Learn so much from you and through this interaction till we meet again. Thank you. Thank you. This Net Connect podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.